One question I ask to groups is, uh, do you have a smartphone? And many people say yes. Do you have apps on your smartphone? Uh, many of those say yes. Uh, and I ask people to raise their hand if they've ever read an app privacy notice. And I've yet to find anyone raise their hand and say they had. CGAP Financial Inclusion Frontiers podcast, where we explore the latest thinking and research in financial inclusion. I'm your host, Andrew Johnson. As digital finance reaches further into the developing world, more and more customers are creating digital footprints, often in places with few checks on how companies can use and share their data. In this episode, I speak with data privacy and protection expert David Medin. He'll discuss his latest research on what can be done to give people more control over their own data. And with that, let's get started. Would you agree to give up your firstborn child to access a social networking website? You might think this is an absurd question, and it is, but when researchers from York University and the University of Connecticut set up a fake website in 2018, 98% of people who signed up agreed to terms and conditions that included this clause. The results were published in a 2018 paper called The Biggest Lie on the Internet. Of course, the implication of this study isn't that people don't love their kids, it's that nobody reads terms and conditions or privacy policies or any of the other consent forms that are meant, at least in theory, to give consumers more control over how companies use our data. The subjects of the study I just mentioned, if they read these forms at all, only spent about a minute on documents that the researchers figure should have taken roughly 15 to 30 minutes. The fact that nobody actually reads consent forms is well known to policymakers. Yet these long, complex forms remain the cornerstone of virtually all data protection and privacy policies around the world. That includes policies meant to protect the growing number of people in developing countries who are using digital financial services often for the first time. To today's guests, that doesn't seem right. David Medine is a senior financial sector specialist at CGAP and an expert in privacy and consumer financial services. Before joining CGAP, he served as former President Barack Obama's chairman of the U.S. Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Before that, he held various senior roles within the U.S. government, including the Securities and Exchange Commission, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Federal Trade Commission, and White House National Economic Council. David's research at CGAP points to what he believes is a better approach to data protection for everyone, especially vulnerable customers in developing countries. David, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks. So first question, and be honest, do you read consent forms? Uh, I don't. Uh, In the past, I was actually, as a practicing lawyer, I was paid to write consent forms. Um, So in that context, I read them. Uh, But as a consumer, I always click through and and don't take the time to read them. That makes me feel a little better about myself. Um, But on on a more serious note, um, I wanted to start by asking you about what you might call the digital downside of financial inclusion. That is, you know, we hear a lot about how uh, when people start generating digital data trails, it um, can improve their access to financial services, for example, through uh, alternative credit scoring. That's the upside, but there's also a downside. And I wonder if you could just start by talking about some of the risks that you see emerging in developing countries. 
I'm sure. And first, thanks for the opportunity to talk about CGAP's work on data protection. Um, there are a lot of benefits to use of data for people in developing countries, but there are, as you say, some risks as well. Uh, one is simply erroneous data. And if you're applying for a loan and they think you're someone else who has a bad credit history, you're going to be turned down. Um, and so it's important that, that the data be used for you to help you get credit, maybe using alternative forms of data like utility payments or school fee payments. Um, but if your father uh, with the same name has a bad credit record and somehow that's mixed up with your history, you could end up being denied uh, a loan or even a job. Um, there are also a number of other risks to improper use of data, uh, including um, being offered high-cost predatory loans because they think you're someone who's vulnerable, um, ID theft, uh, by criminals who impersonate you and get credit in your name. Uh, price discrimination, uh, where they may charge a higher fee to you uh, or cost you for a product or service than someone else because they think you can afford to pay it. Um, or bias, uh, if the uh, decision-making tools uh, that consider your data recognize you have a certain religion, race, caste, um, and so forth, they may actually uh, use that against you. So there are a number of risks for improper data use, uh, but again, without losing sight of the fact that data is a very powerful tool for consumers. Based on your research uh, to date, how aware would you say low-income customers are of these risks in developing countries, and uh, to the extent they're aware, how, how concerned are they? Um, so uh, I think like consumers anywhere, uh, many people are often not aware of how their data is being used, except in the case of fraud, where I think it's a common experience uh, that low-income people get SMS messages that are scams uh, on a regular basis uh, using some of their data. Um, but I think in general, most of us don't really know what happens to data after we provide it to uh, a company um, or service provider. Um, but one of the things that we have discovered is that poor people care about privacy with regard to their data. Uh, and a lot of people think that the poor don't care about uh, that. And so that's a proposition that we set out to test. And so we did some informal interviews in India and, and found that many consumers um, want to make sure that the data they give to financial institutions is working for them and not just for the financial institution. Uh, but we decided to dig even deeper than that, and we hired firms in India and Kenya to do behavioral testing to see if consumers who are making decisions about loans would take into account the fact that a particular loan might protect their data, whereas another lender might offer a loan that didn't protect their data. Um, and so we offered a comparison between two loan products, one at, at one percentage, a particular percentage rate that had no data protection, and one with one or two points higher for the loan that did offer data protection. And what we found, uh, somewhat surprisingly, is that the, about 60% of consumers were willing to pay more for a loan. And I think it's significant because these are very low-income consumers, and so these marginal dollars mean a lot to them, but they were willing to spend it uh, on a higher price loan uh, that protected their privacy. We also translated that percentage rate into a uh, amount in the local currency so people could, could tangibly see how much it was costing. Uh, but also not wanting to be solely a financial decision, we said, okay, let's try something else. Let's have consumers wait on a short line uh, to apply for their loan, maybe 10 minute wait uh, to get a loan without data protection, and then a 30 minute line uh, to wait uh, for a loan with data protection. And we found that a significant majority of consumers were willing to wait on the longer line um, in order to get data protection associated with their loan product. Um, and so I think it shows that uh, consumers are very motivated uh, by 
uh, data issues um, around the world, particularly in developing countries, um, and that it's good for business to actually take that into account because what we're seeing is consumers were picking one company's loan over another because that uh, one of the companies offered data protection. So I think it's a lesson um, to lenders and financial institutions is that even if you don't have laws in your country mandating uh, data protection, you ought to uh, offer it anyway because it'll help you beat out the competition. That's really interesting. So are you actually seeing financial services providers responding to those concerns and uh, and governments as well? Well, we're just, we just published uh, the results of our study on that, so I think it's a little bit too soon to tell. Um, but we're hoping that it will be a, a strong incentive uh, for providers to take into account but also a lesson for policymakers as well on uh, that people do care about data and this is a time to have data protection legislation to protect consumers. We're seeing that around the world. Um, and so in countries that don't have it, let's see the industry step up first to try to offer protections, but then let's also have the policymakers um, set some ground rules for everybody. And I know you have some really interesting recommendations for policymakers. I'll get to that in a second. But first, I just want to ask you another uh question here about, uh, so in 2018, uh, you and our colleague Gayatri Murthy wrote a blog post for CGAP called Data Protection and Financial Inclusion, Why Consent is Not Enough. Uh, and in that post you wrote, and I'm quoting here, as the digital age progresses, the consent model is becoming less fit for its purpose. Um, so my question is, it sounds like you're saying consent is, is becoming even less effective as time goes on. And I wonder if you could unpack a little bit why that is. I'm sure, well, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I admitted that I don't read privacy notices. I suspect most of the people listening to this uh, don't uh, read privacy notices. One question I ask to groups is, uh, do you have a smartphone? And many people say yes. Do you have apps on your smartphone? Uh, many of those say yes. Uh, and I ask people to raise their hand if they've ever read an app privacy notice. And I've yet to find anyone raise their hand and say they had. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is given the technology now with the, we're constantly being essentially barraged with consent requests uh, that we're just tuning them out and we click through to get whatever we want, um, whether it's uh, in an app or on a website. Um, and then I think it's something that's growing uh, subtly, but uh, over time it will be significant, is the Internet of Things, um, which are devices that are connected to the Internet that gather information, location information, or speech, and so forth. Um, where people also are completely unaware of the privacy notices that go along with those devices, uh, and yet we're allowing them to listen in or observe our behavior uh, and, and gather information about us. And so what we're seeing is consumers really trying to click through as quickly as possible, ignore the cookie notice on a website, uh, the terms of service, uh, and, and get through to the um, product or service that they're looking for. The problem is that we have based our whole approach to data protection on the idea uh, that we tell people what we're going to do with their information and then they make an informed decision as to whether uh, that is acceptable or not. Mm -hmm. And clearly that, that part of the model is, is failing, which the consumers aren't making informed decisions, and yet we've assumed that that somehow authorizes providers for how information should be used. I mean, one of the problems for those few consumers who are even willing to look at privacy notices is they're long. Uh, they could, if you someone added up, and it can take weeks of your year, if your life, uh, if you actually read all the relevant privacy notices, um, they're very legalistic and use language that's hard to understand. Um, one of our colleagues in India, an IPFP, a think tank there, um, did a study of college students and law students and presented them with the privacy notices of leading websites in India. 
and then tested the students on what was in those privacy notices. And this was an open book exam, and still about 50% of the answers were wrong uh, about what the privacy policies contained or authorized. And again, these are a very intelligent group of people who are spending the time to go back and look at the notice and still don't um, understand what the notice is telling them. And so that's problematic. Another concern is you can't negotiate. So even you've read a notice and it says, here's what we do with your information. You can say, well, this is okay, this is not okay. Um, and then if you accept my changes, I'll agree to use your service. It's usually all or nothing proposition. And so even reading the notice doesn't really help you if you ultimately want to get the um, product or service. And then of course the notices are written to give maximum flexibility to the provider and how they use your information. Um, and so for all those reasons, we're finding uh, that the classic notice and consent model doesn't work. It has a limited uh, applicability to authorizing what information someone collects from you. Uh, but even that, uh, I think, is, is dwindling because we have our phones now that are tracking our location and, and reporting it back to the phone company or to the apps. Um, and even that, we don't really authorize that collection. So, so there's a limited role for consent on the collection side, but I think it's a, a dwindling one as well. One, I guess one thing I would add is that um, what, what we uh, think is important is to move beyond consent um, because the, it's really an unfair burden on consumers. And so the burden really should be shifted to companies um, to use information responsibly. And just by analogy, uh, if we go into a restaurant, um, we don't you know, go into the kitchen and start seeing the sanitary conditions and the trash disposal and, and how the food is prepared and stored and, and, and so forth. We, uh, that's not our job. That's the restaurant's job and it's the government's job to impose rules on the restaurant to make sure that, that everything and the food is handled properly. We think the same really is true by analogy with data, um, which is when we give it to companies, it's not our job, nor really can we go into the kitchen of the data usage and make uh, judgments about what's going on. We have to uh, put that burden on the provider um, to use information properly and have the government enforce it. And so, so our data is protected and, and works for our benefit. Well, how do you propose that developing countries then go beyond consent, to use your, your term there, um, and shift some of the burden of data protection onto the companies that are collecting and storing and using uh, consumers' data? Um, so we have two alternative proposals uh, uh, for different policies on how data should be protected. Um, the first is a legitimate purposes test should be applied, which is that once a provider collects information, they should use, disclose, and retain that information only for legitimate purposes. And those are purposes that are compatible and consistent with the purpose for, for which it was collected in the first place. Um, and one way to look at it is what would the consumer's reasonable expectations be about how their data was going to be used. Um, if I order something online to be delivered to me, uh, the company clearly needs to know my name, address, billing information, and delivery information. But they don't know, need to know a whole array of other information about me. And so if they collected and used more than that basic information, that would go beyond their legitimate purposes. On the other hand, I might have a financial advisor who is advising me about all my investments, and they may need to know a whole range of information about me in order to provide the service they've promised. And so, again, uh, essentially the provider sets the terms by what service they provide, and then they can collect information that's compatible with that. Um, and so um, uh, on the plus side, that would allow them to use information, not just for the immediate delivery, for instance, but for billing purposes, debt collection purposes, things that are related to um, the service being provided 
Uh, but giving your information uh, when you order something online to a political campaign or for some other purpose that's unrelated would not meet the legi legitimate purposes test. Uh, so that's one approach that we, we were proposing is a legitimate purposes. The other is a fiduciary duty test, which is basically that providers should use information for the benefit of their customers and not only for their own benefit. Um, and so, for instance, uh, if I offer information to a company, um, they sh should use it if I'm applying for insurance. They should use it to find me the best, most appropriate, and maybe least expensive insurance policy, not get paid uh, by a, a different insurance company that offers higher uh, rates uh, to direct people to, the, to them. Because, um, or if, uh, if, if they want to recommend multiple transactions, that's not in my interest. They shouldn't be doing that. They should be using my data uh, to advance my own benefit. I have to ask, how, how realistic are these approaches? Uh, I mean, in countries where policymakers are pushing for these reforms, has there been resistance from the private sector? Um, we haven't seen that, that much. I mean, I, I think the debate is shifting. I, I think what we're seeing now is a growing realization that the consent model is broken. Uh, and we're seeing a number of responses. Uh, in the United States, um, uh, many, including Federal Trade Commission members, have advocated for uh, putting the burden on the provider. Um, India is right now uh, considering a legislation uh, that would impose a fiduciary duty um, on providers. They even call the providers data fiduciaries hmm. in the legislation. Uh, so, so I think we're seeing a shift in, in focus. Um, plus, as I mentioned before, uh, there's some potentially competitive advantages in the marketplace. Um, and for financial inclusion purposes, one of the key things is to build trust and confidence uh, that the product is a good one and that your information will be used properly and will be protected. In addition to shifting the burden of data protection to providers, um, you've also argued that it should be easier for low-income customers to access and control the use of their data. What rights would you like to see people have and why? So I think what we're, we've learned is that um, most of us uh, don't really want to get into privacy policies, as we've discussed, at the time of information collection. But downstream, uh, are, uh, there may be digital rights that are really critical to the consumer, and we do consumers see consumers exercising those rights. So, for instance, again, when I buy a product, I, I'm not too concerned about their data policies, but if I have a dispute about how the data is used, then I want to access my information and have correction rights. Um, and so that's, so one, that's just one example of a data right is access and correction. Uh, another is erasing your data. You may just not want this company to have your data anymore. You may not want to hear from them um, and just um, be able to instruct them to erase your data. One um, competitive uh, uh, right that, that could be adopted is data portability, which is I get to port my data from one company to another. So say I'm working with a bank for a long period of time and a new bank comes into town and says, or a lender and says, we want to see all of your prior transaction history to see what type of account you qualify for or whether you qualify for a loan, um, you want to have a right to move your information from your old bank to your new bank. And that benefits the consumer because the consumer has a much wider array of services that are available to them and it promotes competition in the marketplace and that doesn't have one institution holding your data forever and ever. Um, again, you ought to be able to object to certain uses of your data. And one of the growing trends is automated processing of your data through artificial intelligence or machine learning. And again, sometimes uh, those machines may use your data improperly or and, and introduce bias into the decision-making process. And so you ought to have a right to human intervention and not have 
that decision be made solely by a machine. Uh, and you've proposed this idea of, uh, correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology here, the uh, privacy representative, uh, which is uh, interesting. Um, can you explain what that means and who would serve in that role? And um, you know. I'm sure the uh, this uh, idea was built on a recommendation by Raul Matan, who's uh, probably the leading privacy lawyer in India, uh, for what he called trusted intermediaries. Um, which were um, entities that would look at, uh, say, uh, algorithms or decision-making tools um, to see if they were potentially biased. Um, and um, if they found that they were, or there was some indication of that, have the authority to dig deeper. Uh, sometimes these decision-making tools occur with a, consider a black box where nobody can see what's going on, but somehow a result emerges from that. Well, these intermediaries are what we're calling privacy representatives acting on the consumer's behalf get a chance to look in the box if necessary to see what kinds of decisions it's making um, and to call for reforms if those decisions are biased um, or not as predictive as they should be. So they can do audits, um, they can educate the public, um, they can warn about uh, bad practices. Um, but the intermediaries or representatives could also serve another function, which is to read those lengthy, complicated privacy notices and advise the public about which companies have good policies, which companies have somewhat lacking policies, um, and then make that known to people. Uh, I think one analogy uh, is um, the role that doctors play between patients and drug companies. Uh, drug companies offer a product that can be very complicated, technical, hard to understand what this medicine, what it's made of, what your allergies are, whether it's effectiveness. Uh, and that's the role of the doctor is to basically understand that and then act on your behalf to decide whether this is good for you or not. The same thing could be said of these representatives is they could see if the data practices uh, are good of a company and then help advise the public about whether to go with them or not. In terms of um, who they are, or where they sit in the system, they could be a public entity, they could be the government, uh, they could be a private entity uh, offering the services for fee for a fee or not a nonprofit basis. Um, uh, they could be apps or, or tools that could be used uh, by the consumer um, to evaluate data policies. One recent example is Consumer Reports, which is a magazine in the United States that does testing of consumer products and is setting up a lab to do privacy testing on products. Um, and they can then inform consumers whether this baby monitor is, can be hacked into or a video camera that people put in their home or uh, Alexa type advice, uh, device. Um, and so that's one, just one example of what a, a intermediary or representative could look like. I just want to ask you one last question. Um, so you've outlined a number of, of ways in which countries can improve data protection. Um, in your view, you know how many or how well are are developing countries um, equipped uh, at the moment to move forward with these kinds of ideas? So I think on one level you could say they're incredibly well equipped because they're not burdened with the past. Uh, many of the countries that don't have laws right now have a real opportunity um, to enact laws uh, on data protection to protect their citizens, um, but also to uh, learn from the past, which is that the consent model hasn't worked. Uh, and we also have new technologies now that allow for tracking, eavesdropping, uh, information gathering, and to build a law that takes those into account. Um, so in some ways, they can leapfrog the developed world um, and develop a 21st century data protection law uh, that does a great job at protecting their citizens, 
um, while essentially being modernized and, and learning from the lessons of the past. A lot of times it's trial and error in the past as to what works and what doesn't work. And I think we've seen more about of that over the years. And now countries um, can start from a clean slate and, and adopt a great law. But at the same time, many countries uh, in the developing world are lacking in resources and capability to do um, uh, oversight uh, and supervision uh, in their markets. I mean, that costs money and there are limited assets. And so it is going to be a challenge to enforce these laws. Um, and a lot of it depends on how the law is set up. Um, one thing that can be done is to enact as many self-enforcing rights as possible. And by that, I mean, instead of having the government intervene, you can the consumer can do it directly with the business. So we talked earlier about consumer access to data with a chance to correct it. The government doesn't have to be involved in that transaction. The consumer can go to the company or credit bureau uh, or, or whatever the entity that's holding their data and say, I want to see my data. And if they find errors, have that corrected. No government involvement. However, if the company doesn't properly collect the information at that point, the consumer should have some recourse uh, through the government. Um, but in that case, the government will see a tiny percentage, hopefully, of disputes and not having to be involved uh, in every, every transaction which should limit the burden on the government. Um, there's also um, the possibility of um, automated decision-making, uh, where you have an online arbiter where you can submit your dispute and either have the algorithm resolve it or have, again, the uh, dispute sent to the provider and give the provider the first opportunity um, to respond. Um, and so I think there are, can be very creative ways to enforce these laws, educate people about their rights, without having to burden the government in every case where there may be uh, capabilities that are limited um, to make sure those laws are enforced, but still have the government there as a backup for industry players who just don't get the message. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, David, it was a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Andrew. That's David Medin, Senior Financial Sector Specialist at CGAP. That's it for this episode of the CGAP Financial Inclusion Frontiers podcast. If you'd like to learn more about CGAP's research on data privacy and protection, visit www.cgap.org slash data protection. See you next time.